Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, we'll talk with Gordon Gray, Director of Fiscal Policy at the American Action Forum. That's a center-right organization focused on economic, domestic, and fiscal policy issues in Washington. Gray has authored a new paper on the budgetary and economic trade-offs of reducing the immigration backlog. I mean, I think that that's literally the title of the paper, as a matter of fact, <laughs> and, uh, and a very functional title. And, and, and since we're always looking for good ideas on immigration, uh, we're happy to have Gordon back on the show. And Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman joins me for the conversation. Just as a little background, uh, Gordon's work at the American Action Forum focuses on the federal budget, taxes, and the macroeconomic outlook. He's uh, frequently testified as an expert at uh, Congress. Prior to joining AAF, he served as a senior policy advisor to Senator Rob Portman, and he also served as a staff member for the Senate Budget Committee and also uh, worked on the domestic and economic policy for Senator John McCain's presidential campaign. So, Tory and uh, Gordon, welcome to Facing the Future. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Bob. Gordon, your boss at the American Action Forum, uh, who's also been a guest here, Doug Holtz-Eakin, says that you've come up with a, quote, genuinely pro-growth, anti-inflationary policy. It all has to do with solving the immigration backlog And maybe you could give us a little big picture background first. I mean, we all want good ideas on immigration, and we all assume that improving immigration would help the economy. And maybe we ought to explain a little bit why that is uh, before we get into the nuts and bolts of your intriguing idea. Yeah, I think that's a a great place to start is probably just take a little step back from uh, kind of the specific policy areas that the paper grapples with and, and just sort of think about um, what are the building blocks for the U.S. economy? And at its most basic level uh, from the economy, it's how many workers we have and what do they do with their time? That's the key elements for, for any economy. And right now, uh, the United States is grappling with a challenge in that um, we don't really have the number of workers that we would like to fulfill the full potential in the U.S. economy. And so we see that there are tremendous job openings, uh, you know, for every uh, unemployed worker. I I honestly don't uh, have the ratio in front of me, but uh, we are in a very tight labor market because the economy is is basically demanding more of the labor force than it is providing. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is, uh, in some ways, a good problem to have to the extent that um, there are workers all over the world who would like to do that work here. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, um, I'm, I would be more worried if, uh, that were not the case, if people didn't want to come to the United States, right. There are some challenges, however, sort of along that, 
that chain. To the extent that we need workers in the United States, we need to have conditions here in the United States that support that environment such that people want to come here. And that includes um, things, you know, basic you know, rule of law, uh, security and safety and things like that. And then um, an economy that provides opportunity and then a government that can sort of facilitate um, the sorting of these workers into those um, or providing the opportunity for, for immigrants to participate in the economy. That's uh, one aspect that the paper touches on. Um, but again, stepping back is, uh, you know, we have a challenge here in the United States, which is um, our, our population growth is such that um, it, it's the outlook is, is, is such that it's slowing and um, we end up um, with with a a future that that could look like a diminished population growth, and then um, that poses a number of challenges for an economy uh, when you start having uh, and we already have a population that is in general getting older as the baby boom boomers are retiring. We have fewer workers separating that or uh, supporting uh, that uh, older cohort, and um, part of that is native birth rates are are declining. And essentially, the U.S. Uh, has the opportunity to uh, import labor and grow the population beyond what it would normally uh, uh, produce. And um, we have that opportunity, but we have a number of challenges, some impediments to, to getting that done. And, and the paper touches on uh, one of those aspects, but there's any number of areas in the U.S. immigration system that are, I think, um, in, in need of reform. And this is just sort of touching on one of those. CBO projects that by 2043, there'll be more deaths in this country than births. So it really is, you know, increasingly we are relying on immigration just to maintain population growth. And as an economic matter, you have to have robust economic uh, population growth plus productivity growth in order to have a robust economy. And particularly, as you mentioned, given the aging of the baby boomers, like we are so many uh, of us leaving the workforce and not only leaving the workforce, but collecting benefits that require an economy that can produce the goods and services to afford those benefits. So it's really an imperative economic issue that we do something to uh, improve the immigration outlook. Tori, did you want to jump in here? Well, no, I just I wanted to provide sort of a top line summary is of what I understood Gordon saying, which number one, an economy can only grow as fast as the amount of goods and services its workers can produce. One. Number two, uh, our native population here is is slowing because women are having fewer children. And so third, uh, the only way for our economy to continue to grow at a rate that we would you know, that we enjoy uh, is we need to talk about legal immigration. Um, this isn't a discussion of illegal immigration. This isn't a discussion of what's going on at, at the southern border. Right. This is all about how to how to solve the legal immigration problem and to get more legal immigrants into the United States so that we can continue to grow as as we need to. Exactly. And that brings us to the theory of your paper, which I, I have to say is really kind of interesting because I, I hadn't thought about it. There are a lot of uh, legal immigration proposals, but this is, um, this is kind of like low-hanging fruit in a, in a way. Uh, and it has to do with the backlog of immigrants being approved to come into the United States. So why don't you uh, sort of sketch out the, the backlog problem? Sure. Looking at uh, 
just as you said, one aspect of uh, immigration policy, and that is legal immigration. And so there's other agencies that deal with border security and uh, the State Department deals with uh, you know, visitor visas and things like that. So this is just specifically looking at U.S. Customs and Immigration Service, USCIS's um, caseload. So the number of applications for uh, immigration benefits pending before this particular agency. And this is essentially the gatekeeper for legal immigration. And it is the agency to which people apply for. There's over 50 different forms uh, uh, that you have to fill out depending on what what kind of immigration benefit you're looking at. Now, these benefits can run the gamut from replacing a lost card to being granted asylum, to granted citizenship, granted legal permanent residence or your green card. It runs the gamut. And in any given year, there's uh, millions of, on the order of like seven, roughly 7 million applications filed. uh, And the agency turns over, approves about 90% of these applications in any given year. Only about 10% are denied for for one reason or another. And that's sort of the agency average across all forms. And so it varies. And so their caseload in general, when things are going great, is tremendous. And they turn over... Um, a substantial share of them. This is an agency that is performing fairly well, given uh, the constraints that is placed on them. And and I'll touch on those constraints in a minute. Again, this is a good problem to have, that we have millions and millions of instances of people seeking uh, immigration in one form or another to the United States. This is where people want to come. That's, again, a a good thing, particularly when collectively the economy really needs new workers, Mm -hmm. as we've sort of talked about. However, the USCIS is a somewhat unique uh, agency in that it's, it's a federal agency that, that is very much public facing. Uh, and that public facing activity often must be done in person. And so uh, immigration benefits, there's biometrics involved, there's interviews that have to be given and granted. And so unlike a lot, I mean, even the IRS, for the most Background part, checks. You, you mail stuff to them. Of all the federal agencies that individuals interact with, it's probably the IRS uh, that people probably most deal with most directly, and yet you do that somewhat by correspondence, whereas USCS very much involves in-person activity. And given the volume, it is labor-intensive. There's a lot of people who need to do a lot of things, essentially, for them to do their mission. Because of that mission, it was somewhat susceptible to disruption because of uh, COVID-19. And so just a little bit of a decline in the agency's performance, given the scope and scale of their workload, can have tremendous consequences. So if just a little bit goes wrong, just a small percentage can mean an awful lot in absolute terms when you consider how many applications they're they're being asked to to process. And that's essentially what happened uh, to this agency. Uh, Essentially, um, uh, the, the agency publishes data on their uh, application uh, statistics, including what is called their pending caseload. So basically how many applications are at any given time just hanging out at the agency waiting to be processed. And this has actually been con- uh, conflated somewhat with this, this notion of, of a backlog, and we'll get into that in a second. Um, of that roughly eight and a half million applications that were pending with the agency, um, over five million are considered uh, backlogged, which is to say that for the given form, it has taken longer than the agency's uh, process, you know, sort of mandated processing times. They, it has exceeded that amount. 
And the backlog is about 5.2 million as of the last uh, indication. And that part has grown substantially in the last two years because of the disruption to the agency. And so what, what that backlog is composed of is uh, really, again, uh, just a, a snapshot of all of the forms pending uh, with the agency. And again, it runs the gamut from I lost my green card to um, I'm uh, a refugee and need asylum. Uh, so it runs the gamut. And um, that is essentially what, what the paper deals with is, all right, how do we clear out the backlog? What would it take? And what would we get from that? And that's this, the, the central uh, uh, question uh, that, the, that the payer proposes and grapples with. So, Gordon, uh, talking about this this backlog and, you know, five million out of eight million applications are considered backlogs. So that's like 60 percent of of their of their pending cases are are backlogs. Do we know um, do we know how that sort of splits up? Are they are these largely uh, is this largely attributable to covid? Is this largely attributable to unrest, geopolitical unrest? Is this largely attributable to what happened in Afghanistan and how the United States pulled out of Afghanistan and but we absorbed a lot of their their refugees? It, do we know sort of where what caused the bubble aside from you know is this just it, obviously the agency had to shut down uh, because of covid which created backlogs but have we also seen a surge in applications or have things just sort of continued on normally and it's just you know covid caused the the backup or are there a bunch of are we squeezing the balloon in a bunch of different places i guess is my point so the answer is yes I wrote in the, the paper, it, it was something of a, of a perfect storm. Now, it, it did appear, I think, because of COVID, just sort of the, the, the ability to uh, emigrate uh, was reduced. And so there, I think what we saw was maybe a bit of a lag in some of the, the applications. But uh, in the data, just sort of overall statistically, you saw a big decline in the agency's ability to process uh, new applications. And that was very clear is just, uh, essentially in the year after, uh, the disruption, they were, uh, they basically processed like 70% as opposed to 90%. And again, that little, you know, not little, but, but, um, that had a, a, a consequential effect on, uh, the, the caseload, but also we've seen, um, you know, geopolitical events, um, animating this as well. And that includes uh, the need to resettle uh, uh, allies uh, from Afghanistan. And that's actually, um, and this touches on in, uh, one area that is unique to the agency, which is their funding structure, which is they don't rely on congressional appropriations. And it, it's, it's pretty, uh, it, it is consequential for the agency. And we can talk about that some more. But one area where Congress has stepped in for appropriations has been for uh, assisting the uh, resettlement of uh, Afghan uh, translators and, and other um, allies in that space. But that's been a multi-agency effort. So HHS and other agencies have uh, also been part of that as well. I wanted to go back to that funding source because yeah. it really seems to be part of the problem here is you've got an agency that's running pretty efficiently as you said, but it's almost like just-in-time delivery where if, yeah. if something goes wrong uh, with that smooth track, then uh, then it can go substantially wrong. It's it's not because of its funding source, and, and you can sort of uh, 
elaborate on this, but it has been difficult for the agency to adjust to something like a backlog because it's got you know these user fees coming in, but that's not enough to take care of a backlog. And so the backlog can just get worse and worse. Exactly. This is an agency and, and uh, coming into this, this, this project, I, I, I didn't have uh, this understanding of, of this agency's operations and, and how they are funded. And I was, as a budget expert, um, I was shocked that this agency receives 97% of its funding through, uh, through fees. Mm-hmm. And so it is almost entirely funded um, Self-funded. By, mm-hmm. by applicants, um, which uh, from a taxpayer perspective, a pure taxpayer perspective, sounds great. It's sort of that, that old adage, like, don't tax me, don't tax you, tax that man behind the tree. Right. Tax the immigrants. <laughs> yeah. And in, in this case, or it's, or it's like cities, you know, they, uh, you know, put all their funding needs on rental car taxes and hotel taxes, like someone else will pay for it. Export and, your taxes. Um, uh, kind of looks like that. Um, and uh, it is presumably convenient from the perspective of congressional appropriators because something they don't have to fund. Um, however, uh, w- what that, that means is um, fundamentally that they, this is an agency that lives hand to mouth. And the, the way that they uh, set their fees is essentially the, the agency uh, estimates what their workload will be, and then uh, for uh, the coming term, and and they're uh, supposed to uh, review their fee structure every two years, and so they they gin up uh, estimates for uh, what their workload will be uh, across all their different forms because different forms have different uh, uh, benefit applications, and there's there's well over fifty. Um, uh, immigration benefits that they they process, and and these are you know very diverse populations and very diverse needs, uh, and very diverse uh, processing and administrative uh, requirements. Um, and so for each application, there's a different fee that they set, and essentially their their goal is to break even, um, and then also uh, figure out how much what their staffing needs will be to. Um, uh, process applications within the agency's uh, parameters for processing times. And, and then the way they, they get this, their fees uh, adjusted is they have to follow the Administrative Procedures Act. So they have a proposed rule and then everybody responds to comments. Public and comment. that takes mm-hmm. months and months up to years. And then they publish a final rule. Um, well, right now, the agency is operating under the fee structure that was uh, uh, published in the Federal Register in 2016, mm-hmm. um, if, I'm, if, I'm, if I'm recalling correctly. And uh, the last time they, they tried to get their fees adjusted was a rule published, the proposed rule was in 2020, and a federal court enjoined them um, when they published the final rule for the uh, the injunction wasn't related specifically just to the fees. Um, in fact, I, I, uh, I, uh, the, I don't <laughs> recall exactly what the, the court's problem was, um, but it was peripheral. The, 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 fees the point is that they have trouble raising their fees. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not an easy thing to do. Yeah. So, uh, having- Gordon, we're going to have to take a break here. This is where at the end of our first session. So we, we can pick up with these. Hold that thought. <laughs> with these funding issues. 
Uh, we'll be right back. You're listening to Facing the Future on WKXL. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and we'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and Tori Gorman and I are talking with Gordon Gray, Director of Fiscal Policy at the American Action Forum, a center-right think tank in Washington, and we're discussing Gordon's interesting idea about uh, helping the economy by reducing the legal immigration backlog. And uh, Gordon, you were talking about some of the unique funding challenges of the agency involved. Um, And do you want to pick up as we were uh, just before we had to break off of the break? Sure. So just just to uh, uh, recap, essentially, USCIS uh, relies almost entirely on user fees uh, to fund the agency's operations. And those user fees are, are paid by immigration benefit applicants. Uh, the agency has some uh, uh, immigration benefits that are uh, ha- either have a capped fee, you know, so something like the, the fees can never be more than $50 or have no fee uh, involved at all. But in that instance, essentially, the agency has to um, uh, raise the fees elsewhere, sort of in the immigration uh, benefit um, space. And uh, so that the agency, again, relies almost entirely on uh, immigrants' uh, 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 fee payments to, to fund the operation. And what that means is that, and these fees are reviewed periodically, but it's a cumbersome uh, review process. And so the agency just doesn't have a lot of flexibility uh, to address um, incoming needs and to sort of evolve uh, their, uh, their posture for um, uh, their their caseloads and with COVID uh, presenting a number of disruptions, they just got they fell behind. And the way that they're structured is they can never really catch up. Essentially, their fees are designed to meet incoming case uh, caseloads, and so they're just not structured uh, to ever sort of dig out. And so, just w- given that uh, uh, restriction. If you're going to dig out from this backlog and essentially um, basically uh, let let these workers who are being held up essentially by a bureaucratic delay into the economy, um, there's it's probably worth looking at Congress um, uh, doing what they otherwise don't do with this agency, which is provide an appropriation uh, to staff up or essentially surge uh, some capacity to dig mm-hmm. out from this backlog. And, and that's essentially what the paper looks at. So what are what are the recommendations in your in your paper, Gordon? Uh, so what what we did was just uh, look at uh, a couple different funding scenarios. So essentially looking at, all right, so for uh, a given appropriation, how many workers or uh, uh, immigration officers could you could you hire staff up uh, and how effective are they in digging out from the backlog? And so. Um, that, those were sort of the key building blocks for this analysis, which is, all right, for you know, how much does a new uh, FTE cost, so a full-time equivalent? That was the basic unit of analysis for, uh, for the staffing uh, mm-hmm. scenarios. Uh, and so you could think of it like um, you could do this any number of ways. This could be viewed as, you know, uh, you know, uh, over, you know, part-time, you know, workers being used to surge. I mean, you could, it could be contractors. It's, um, it, the paper is somewhat agnostic on, on that is essentially mm-hmm. just um, additional processing capacity. And so we looked at uh, how, you know, what, what completion rates were by form to get a sense of when you hire a new, uh, a new uh, officer for 
uh, USCIS, essentially how many forms uh, can they process in a given hour and then over a given year, and how many people will it take to accomplish uh, uh, backlog reduction. And, and that's what we looked at over, and we looked at different funding scenarios, which looked at, all right, well, for a given uh, uh number of FTEs, uh, how much would it cost, how quickly could they reduce the backlog. And we looked at uh, uh, essentially three, and I did a couple uh, just for look that tweaked some of the uh, completion rates just to sort of get a uh, upper and lower bounds. And they were fairly close. Uh, it was all basically between for about three to four billion dollars, you could eliminate this backlog uh, over anywhere from uh, two to eight years. Um, but, you know, kind of the central case uh, was essentially four to five years. And, and you're looking at, again, in, in that three to four billion dollar range. That's roughly the order of magnitude. Um, uh, you know, we have some humility about um, just how precise <laughs> these these estimates are, because for all of these, these are uh, basically estimates built on projections with averages and assumptions. So I don't want to... Um, uh, presumed to be too precise, but I think that order of magnitude sounds correct and is also um, uh, is somewhat in accord with, with some of the extent analyses. So if I hear you correctly, what you're saying is to solve this problem, it's going to cost anywhere between three and four billion dollars. Mm -hmm. And Congress can either, either choose to solve it quickly, like within the next year or two, a big chunk of money right away, or they can choose to sort of dribble it out over a, a number of years. And one of the interesting conclusions, I think, about your, 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 these different scenarios is that even though Congress is stepping in with some extra appropriations to get rid of this backlog, you say that in the end, getting rid of this backlog is going to pay for itself, correct? Yeah. And when I take a step back and think about it, intuitively, it makes sense. It's essentially um, a one-time transaction for essentially uh, allowing a worker in and they're like a lifetime of, of, of tax payments and economic activity. That logic made, made sense to me. You could let in, at least advance, accelerate the entrance of on the order of 900,000 workers into the economy who otherwise uh, are held up. Mm -hmm. And that proposition seems like a, a good one from the taxpayer's perspective. That's what, what animated that. And again, um, you know, the, the order of magnitudes, I think, are sensible. So essentially within the budget window, you have a, an appropriation that clears out the backlog and that lets in. So again, like I said, a lot of these uh, benefit applications, the 5.2 million backlog, not all of those are employment-based applications. You know, there's a significant share in there that's, like I said, inconsequential economically, like I lost my green card and I need a new one, things like that, much more mundane uh, applications, but there's a significant share that are uh, uh, economically consequential and would give rise to employment. And um, that's primarily what, what is animating this, which of that 5.2 million, we estimated there would be about 930,000 uh, uh, new workers working and being productive. And the analysis here is, is again, fairly not too fancy. We know that the, the literature um, finds that basically new immigrants uh, tend to um, have you know, higher productivity than average and uh, you know, higher levels of entrepreneurship, mm -hmm. all that. This, this can probably conservatively, this analysis doesn't include that. It just uses sort of average labor productivity. Uh, and so in that sense, it's, it's somewhat conservative in, in estimating how significant uh, these new workers could be. 
uh, to the economy. On the other hand, it's there's um, there's areas where this this estimate could be improved. So um, the the this estimate doesn't sort of project sort of future immigration levels uh, over time. It just kind of holds this backlog constant, and then the way we uh, and assess uh, the uh, uh, the economic significance is just essentially the um, uh, the, the degree to which that backlog can be eliminated and, and those workers are sort of uh, uh, put into the labor force. And so that's uh, how that comes together. So I think on balance, um, uh, we, we sort of get the, um, uh, get the right order of magnitude for, for this. And, and I think the risks are sort of balanced on each side. So we're getting a, a fairly good sense of uh, kind of the, the, the trade-offs, the costs and benefits for this kind of uh, policy. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, is it, uh, the, I mean, immigrants, we, we uh, acknowledge add to the GDP because they're bringing their, their own labor and, uh, and tend to be more productive. There are also expenses involved uh, with any new citizen. So have you found in looking at the literature that the, the, the benefits outweigh the costs? I mean, so you're adding to GDP, which is a good thing. Uh, but n- new citizens obviously have costs just like old citizens do. So uh, where does that uh, play out? Yeah. So um, the, it, you know, there, the, and we, we sort of touch on this in the paper, which is if you just take a snapshot of the federal budget and our population in general, we're running a massive, massive deficit. And so per capita, we're all, you know, we're all a drain. <laughs> yeah, we're all. Each one of us contributes, you know, negative budgetarily. You know, on a, you know, on average per capita, um, and so, um, you know, by that by that logic, each new person would just be worse for the budget. But that's um, uh, not quite really how it shakes out when you're considering that um, these these folks are in general uh, more productive, and and the way we treat them sort of in this study, which is you know, these are all substantially all going into the labor force paying or into the employment to the extent that they're already got employment benefits. Um, they're already sort of working. And so uh, this is a sort of uh, relatively more productive cohort. And so there's um, an, a separate analysis I included in the paper just to sort of draw some of this out. And um, what the paper doesn't have sort of a micro simulation for, you know, each each individual comes in and they have a relative uh, average of tax share and benefit share. Um, we don't quite have have that level of analysis in here, but we do rely on uh, the National Academy of Sciences sort of looked at some of these um, uh Look, grappled with sort of these fundamental questions about, you know, what is what is the economic and budgetary effects of of uh, immigration? And there's a number of scenarios that they looked at, but one in particular, and I I put this in the paper, which is sort of uh, first generation new immigrants. So, uh, touching on sort of what we just talked about before, on average, each one of us is uh, a, a net negative for the budget because we're running. Uh, a, a federal deficit, but marginal new new immigrants uh, pay more taxes than than they collect in benefits. Um, the National Academy found on the, on the margin for first generation immigrants, uh, and um, we we uh, use that analysis to do a sort of an alternative look uh, at what the uh, fiscal implications would be for backlog reduction, and we use a little different estimate for the number for. Uh, how many people would be affected 
uh, in that sense. And again, we, we get a similar order of magnitude for the fiscal effects. Um, and I, this was very much sort of an upper bound, but it was, I think, on the order of about $30 billion over 10 years. Um, you know, you, what, if that's half of that. It's roughly what the other estimate said. So I felt pretty comfortable that this was getting the right order of magnitude relative to the right order of magnitude for what the appropriations would be. So I feel pretty confident that on balance, uh, this would be good for the taxpayer. Mm-hmm. That's a good optimistic place to leave it for this segment. We'll be, uh, we're going to take a short break. We're uh, talking with Gordon Gray of the American Action Forum about a proposal he has for reducing the immigration backlog. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and Tori Gorman and I are talking with Gordon Gray. He's the director of fiscal policy at the American Action Forum in Washington, D.C. And uh, Gordon has come up with a new proposal for reducing the immigration backlog and thereby helping the economy and uh, not causing too much of a problem with the budget. <laughs> so, uh, Tori, you want to pick up on the questioning? Sure, sure. I just I wanted to make one point uh, and then ask a question. And you know, one of the things about uh, one aspects of legal immigration that I just don't think is getting enough attention are the na- the amount of the number of international students that come here for college and they go to school here at our at our American universities and they major in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. But because of this backlog. In, in visa applications, they can't stay here and work here. So, you know, we, we train these individuals and they're smart individuals, but we can't keep them here. And so they don't add to our, our, our economic growth. And so I, I think that's where we really need to take a, I'm glad that, you know, Gordon's worked on this issue. And I think we need to, to spend some more time talking about it because I think it's, 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 it's an area that needs um, some, some more attention. And I guess the, the question I had for Gordon is, you know, your paper talks about, uh, you know, different different ways, uh, different pathways to eliminating the backlog, sort of slow and steady versus, you know, surge capacity. And that, in your analysis, requires uh, the Customs and Immigration Service from hiring anywhere from 1,100 to 8,500 new people uh, or full-time equivalents in order to uh, uh, address this backlog. Does the agency have the capacity to absorb that many new people. I mean, this is a great idea. It's a great plan. Can the agency execute? Uh, so uh, I would be skeptical if the agency announced, uh, I believe it was my third scenario in the paper, I think, where the way I uh, estimated that was essentially divided the, the entire backlog using sort of how we figured out um, how, you know, for a given uh, FTE, how many uh, applications could they process? And essentially, that was the totality of the workload. So essentially, if you staffed um, uh, the agency uh, to eliminate the, the backlog as quickly as you possibly could, it would still take time uh, and require thousands of new workers. Uh, uh, but it, you, you couldn't do it within a year, in part because you just can't onboard that many people. And I also think under this scenario, it's somewhat optimistic that they could even um, find that many workers that that quickly. In fact, I have a built-in lag in, in my estimates because it takes um, over six months uh, to find a get uh, immigration officer, you know, uh, select them, train them, uh, and with any number of other sort of delays incumbent in, in, in onboarding of any employee. And so that's very much, a, I think, an upper bound for what, what is even 
remotely realistic. Um, and so I would imagine, and in fact, the scenario that we most closely examined uh, was one that would, uh, you know, you wouldn't be able to get this done for until the latter half of uh, this decade. And um, uh, I, I think that that's probably a bit more realistic. The agency itself, um, when they do their uh, periodic uh, review for their staffing needs, their internal model, and they were critiqued by GAO and others, can't grapple with hiring delays and aspects of, of their workforce. It's just uh, outdated and doesn't have that level of sophistication. So the agency itself can't really quite uh, under, uh, estimate their own staffing needs as well as we would like. And that's been a challenge as well. You know, that uh, struck me in the paper kind of subtly, and you don't say it, but it seemed to me from reading the paper that the agency itself is not that jazzed about doing something about the backlog. I mean, it, you know, you're used to having people coming forward from the Hill agency heads and things saying, you know, we need more resources. We've got this, you know, huge problem and our funding source doesn't allow us to deal with it. And, and you know, here you're making all those cases, but there isn't, you, you know, there doesn't seem to be that sense of urgency yeah. for change coming from yeah, the administration itself. Yeah, and I, I, I admittedly was a little surprised just jumping into this project that some of these answers weren't already known and available. Um, the, the growth in the backlog has been one that's been commented on uh, in the past. It was also somewhat foreseeable given the agencies, um, the, just the nature of their business and how COVID uh, um, was affecting them. In fact, the, the workforce got two uh, furlough warnings um, uh, a couple of years ago during during COVID, those were avoided. But this was an agency that was conspicuously in distress and was going to fall behind. Um, but it also seems to be the case that the agency isn't quite postured to to do this; that they're not quite um, uh, ready to pursue um, uh, a strategy in, in reducing the backlog. Um, there have been a number of observations that. Uh, you know, a strategy was supposed to be forthcoming and may or may not have been shared with, with Congress, but it hasn't been shared with the public. Um, and so, yeah, it seems like they're a little bit behind, behind the eight ball here. And so, um, you know, I, I, I'd like to think that uh, to whatever extent people read the paper that maybe it would, <laughs> uh, might encourage folks to um, uh, get with it. Sounds like Joe Biden needs to put a turnaround specialist in charge of CIS. Could be, I, you know, you know, this is, you know, it's a challenge, I think, is that, you know, it's it's one of a constellations of agencies that's subordinated to, uh, you know, to DHS and, you know, they have agency missions and their own, you know, sort of overall department priorities and each agency has uh, has challenges and they're all um, squabbling for uh, congressional appropriations. This is an agency that usually isn't mm-hmm. looking for appropriations. And so it's kind of a a novel scenario or a situation that they're finding themselves in. Well, and I'd like to point out, we do have some 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 case history in how a, a situation like this could be beneficial. I mean, when you take a look at the Social Security Administration and the backlog that they had in continuing disability reviews, you know, part of the, you know, the Budget Control Act that we passed in, in, in 20, 2011 um, said, all right, SSA, if you fund, you know, a, a minimum amount, a base amount, uh, for processing of continuing disability reviews, we're going to give you some extra, you know, and 
up until COVID, they were actually doing a really good job of chop of 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 eliminating their backlog. And of course, when COVID happened and they shut down all the social security offices and and you know the, the CD work you know, went went along with it. Um, so they're sort of <laughs> behind the eight ball again. But you know this sort of surge capacity created by you know extra appropriations. Now, granted. SSA is used to getting appropriations from the federal government, right? So there's, there's that, that that one aspect of it. But you know, this was a uh, you know a committee within Congress that said took a look at this problem and said we need to eliminate this problem. We're going to do it by surging appropriations for a, 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 a limited amount of time, um, and was successful. Yeah, um, you know, they, they, there have been backlogs in the agency before, and they've um, uh, gotten on on top of them or and reduced it. In the past, um, and so the agency has, in, uh, in testimony and other communications, been talking about, and the ombudsman uh, has reported on uh, some uh, improvements in efficiency. They're trying to, and it makes sense to do more. Um, only like ten percent of the forms can be processed online, and so they're trying to rapidly expand that, um, and that should have some some uh, improvement on their ability to process. Um, applications, but there's some other policy changes that are slowing up the process as well. And so uh, just in a steady state, it's possible that the backlog um, may just grow, um, mm-hmm. not because, uh, uh, you know, they're not getting adequate appropriation, but in just some of the policy changes, some of the, well, some of the changes they're doing are making the problem better. Some are making it worse. So I think it is, I think it is so hard for lawmakers right now to talk about immigration. I mean, you just say the sure. word immigration, even though we're talking about legal immigration, it gets wrapped up in all the negative connotations with what's going on at the border. And you literally get lawmakers who stick their fingers in their ears and go, nah, 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 nah. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, penny wise pound foolish kind of thing, you know, where, or, you know, cutting off your nose to spite your face. Well, you know, I was going to ask you, you know, one of the, one of the potential attributes here is that it, is relatively politically non-charged. It's um, you have to hire more people, so that's always a, a little bit of a problem. But uh, maybe in terms of taking baby steps to sort of address the problem that Tory pointed out, if you you don't you don't you don't want to try to solve the whole big problem here with a big comprehensive bill, maybe could start by solving a definable problem like a backlog. Exactly. And, and I, I'd like to think, you know, it, separating it from the sort of broader conversation about immigration and, and, um, uh, and, and immigration policy, immigration reform, the border is just, here's an agency that is supposed to do a job. It's hamstrung. And we have uh, a widely acknowledged worker shortage. And there is a bureaucratic holdup. To, to the ability to get almost a million workers into the workforce. Like from a conservative perspective, great, you can blame a government agency for this. That, you know, <laughs> we're good at that. <laughs> and, um, but then taking a step back, uh, you can just say, all right, well, here's almost a million workers ready and willing to work. Mm-hmm. We, should, we should encourage that. So it's, it, you don't have to get in, hopefully get involved in some of the, the arguments that, that otherwise uh, impede um, meaningful discussion on immigration reform. And even, and I mean, even if you need to, just to sort of get a, a, a you know, a foot in the door is just, let's just focus on H, H1B visas. You know, these are your, your highly skilled uh, uh, workers. These are, these are your engineers, your physicists, your mathematicians, your, you know, your doctors, your, you know, 
you know, let's just focus on getting them here legally, you know, so that they can live here, work here, pay taxes here, pay social security, but, you know, taxes here, pay income taxes here, you know, and, and, and fill those jobs. And then, you know, but I, I just think, again, I just, I just think this whole, you know, legal immigration gets so wrapped up with the illegal immigration and it's just impossible for lawmakers to talk about, which is a shame. Yeah. They just, uh, not enough, often they just kind of throw up their hands and are like, ah. Mm-hmm. Can't touch this. Well, ultimately, they'll have to do a big deal on some of that. The uh, the legal immigration reform will have to come with some sort of package about border security. And they, they actually were there not that long ago and had right. like about 70 votes in the Senate for it. It's just, you know, it has been politicized. election politics get in the way. Right. It's, it has been politicized to such an extent now that you couldn't recreate anything like that. Um well, Gordon, we're going to have to leave it there for this uh, this show. And but I really appreciate the work that you're putting into this and uh, putting out ideas on uh, how to solve a definable problem in the in- immigration sphere. That's all for this week. Uh, thank you, Tori, for joining us. And I'm your host, Bob Bixby. We'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future. 